The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Quantum Connection, exploring health, science, and spirit with your host, Marina Rose, QDNA. From the smallest cellular structure to the broadest life experiences, every thought, every belief, and every action has the power to transform every aspect of our lives. Because reality at its core is made manifest through consciousness and its direct connection to the quantum field. It's time to remove the self-imposed boundaries created by your reality and discover practical, everyday tools to transform your life. Now, here is your host, Marina Rose, QDNA. Welcome to Quantum Connection Radio Show. I'm your host, Marina Rose, QDNA, and I want to thank you all for tuning in and listening. You have now entered the quantum field of quantum connection, the intracellular holographic matrix where we make the impossible possible, utilizing QDNA quantum DNA acceleration, which combines the cutting-edge science in neuroplasticity, epigenetics, DNA programming, and quantum field theory to assist you to achieve quantum growth in your health, life, and business. During this show, we explore health, science, and spirit to accelerate your path to extraordinary living with some of the world's most influential thought leaders sharing their insights on how to optimize your health and well-being. Today, our topic is neuroplasticity. You are not your brain. Unlock the OCD brain lock in your DNA. And our guest is the compassionate, passionate, humanitarian, and brilliant Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz. Welcome, Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz, and thank you so much for accepting my invitation on my show. And I would like to tell the audience a little bit about you before you come on air completely. You are a wonderful research psychiatrist at UCLA School of Medicine and a seminal thinker and researcher in the field of self-directed neuroplasticity as an application for obsessive Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, OCD, at UCLA. You have written over a 100 scientific publications in the fields of neuroscience and psychiatry. You have written several popular books on neuroscience, neuroplasticity, and obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. You Are Not Your Brain, The Four-Step Solution for Changing Bad Habits, Ending Unhealthy Thinking, and Taking Control of Your Life. You wrote The Mind and Brain, Neuroplasticity and Power of Mental Force. You also wrote Brain Lock, Free Yourself from Obsessive Compulsive Behavior. And I know you've written other books, but these are the ones on neuroscience and um, 
OCD. You're also devoted a substantial amount of time to Buddhist philosophy, in particular to the philosophy of mindfulness, a conscious awareness, which revolves around the central idea that the mind is an active participant in the world and that its actions has a physical effect on the workings of the brain. This set you out on a scientific, this set you out to find a scientific underpinning for the belief that mindfulness does affect how the brain functions. And in in the 1990s, you finally made your key discovery at UCLA, as shown on the PET scans, a four-step cognitive behavioral therapy that you pioneered that is capable of actually changing the activity in a specific brain circuit of patients with obsessive-compulsive disorder. Your research led you to study the works of other doctors who were known as experts in their fields. You were in disbelief about how some of the doctors were putting their patients in danger. You looked further into the treatments that these doctors were um, doing in their field who were experts giving obsessive-compulsive disorder patients And you were basically in disbelief and your desire grew exponentially because of the discomfort levels that were being triggered by the inhumane treatments being offered to them, which was based on research solely on animals and then applied to human beings. You believed that doctors were not taking into account the patient's mental faculties and the behavioral therapy was missing the boat. You wanted to spare the OCD patients and any person with mental disorders from unnecessary, irresponsible, even brutal treatments by experts who pride themselves on ignoring what their patients are feeling or indeed whether they're even conscious. You thought there has to be something deeply wrong with this and with both morally and scientifically with the, and with the school of psychology whose central tenets is the people's conscious life experience is irrelevant. Your passion for wanting to empower OCD patients and patients with mental disorders gave birth to your four-step self-treatment method to change your brain chemistry. You coined the term brain lock, meaning that obsessive compulsive disorders, OCD, are a result of biochemical imbalance, which where the brain functions will get locked in an obsessive compulsive pattern and that the OCD can be actually self-treated using these four steps. And I'll let you tell people about the four steps in a little bit. You were a consultant to Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio for the film Aviator regarding Howard Hughes and his OCD. You also appear with them in the bonus DVD extras of the film. And you appeared in the film Expelled No Intelligence Allowed. You appeared on national prominent TV shows, including Oprah, 2020, Today's Show, Donahue and Lisa. And your website, if anyone wants to get hold of Dr. Schwartz, is jeffreymschwartz.com. However, before we get started on this wonderful topic and your incredible research, Dr. Schwartz, what else would you like to share or can you share or that you would like to share about yourself that's not written in your book or written anywhere else? That's just from your heart, from you, who you are as a person. Okay, thanks. That, that, that was quite a description there. Mm. <laughs> it's interesting sitting and listening to kind of your life uh, go right by like that. Um, so uh, so what, what, what doesn't come up that often in the public 
side, um, but is very, very important to me. And since since you did specifically mention the you know the strength of the Buddhist background that I have, and that's absolutely true. I have a, I have a very strong Buddhist background. Um, I'm also Jewish, and uh, and now I'm extremely interested in Christian applications. So I would say specifically the philosophy of Kierkegaard. I would call myself an existential Christian. It's something that is probably the single most important thing to me now is uh, these, these approaches in a Christian context and the whole concept of Kierkegaardian existential Christianity. Interesting. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's okay. awesome. Awesome. And I have a lot of Jewish Buddhist friends, by the way. I've been to very many Buddha mitzvahs. <laughs> Since you're in Venice, California, I find that extremely plausible and very easy to believe. Yes, yes, yes. So I invited you as my guest here, Dr. Schwartz, because you're so refreshingly open, blunt, and straight to the point. You said in one of your books, psychiatry in its biological incarnation has become smitten with materialist reductionism, and the idea that all phenomena can be explained by the interaction and movements of material particles. Can you elaborate on that for yeah. our audience, please? Yeah, I can. Um, and, and you're right. That, I mean, that's quite a mouthful to just read, and a lot of people are going to be going, now, what does that mean? Um, <laughs> so, which is fair enough. And if you stay tuned, you're going to find out right now. So, so what, what that means is that the simplest way to put that into very plain language is that psychiatry in our era um, is, is so committed to proving itself to be a branch of neuroscience. And, you know, I am a neuroscientist. I've been a neuroscientist for a long time. I am a proud member of the Society for Neuroscience my first attendance at the Society of Neuroscience annual meeting was in 1977. I go to it almost every year. I went to it in Chicago a few weeks ago. Um, the brain is important. I like the brain. I like studying the brain. But I think it is a mistake to think all aspects of people's mental health and even more of a mistake to think all aspects of people's consciousness is explained by the brain, just the brain. I think that's really a, a, a wrong direction that psychiatry has taken to become so committed to one aspect of reality, the material aspect of reality. So that, so that when we talk about materialism in, in, in men, the mental health field, what we mean is they basically think everything can be explained by just understanding the material functions of the brain. And I think that is radically incomplete because it leaves out the whole issue of focus of attention, quality of attention, choices about what to pay attention to, choices about how to pay attention. And then I guess to put it in, in a very sort of straightforward way that is very relevant to the model, the method that I've developed and is really stressed in my last book, which no one will be surprised after what I just said to find out is titled, You Are Not Your Brain, um, is, is this concept of the wise advocate. And, and, and so the wise advocate is, is something every single person has 
you know, within them or has, has access to. And, and honestly, I'm more than happy to work with people with the wise advocate concept who have no real particular spiritual commitment of any kind. I mean, honestly, you can, you can be a radical atheist and, and still very constructively engage with and use the wise advocate concept just by thinking of it as a cognitive construct. Um, but, but of course, it, it doesn't in any way, shape, or form need to be limited to that, and 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 it and and going the other way, it can it can be it can be as big as as any person could possibly want it to be. So it so it it's access to something that every person has that allows them to view with a clear-minded perspective what is going on inside of them, what are they thinking, what are they feeling, what's going on right now, you know this whole process of observation and, and as you can see it's closely related to the concept of mindfulness because it has it has a very present oriented observational perspective and I have just come to prefer the term wise advocate to the term mindfulness because because what the term wise advocate adds in addition to mindfulness in its pop cultural form of right now these days is the word mindfulness traditionally understood always always had the 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 idea of making a discernment making an assessment and and to be completely candid if if you if you go back and look in the ancient ancient texts it, it it's very very clear cut that the entire function of mindfulness was really to, to make clear-minded assessments and dis- discernments about the wholesomeness or unwholesomeness, the, the, the words in the, in the original scriptural language, which is Pali, spelled P-A-L-I, which is the scriptural language of pre-Christian ancient Buddhism, which is very much a pre-Christian development, um, that obviously, though, had been around for 2,500 years. The words are kusala and akusala, and, mm. and, and the most common translation of those two words are wholesome and unwholesome. Some people prefer skillful and unskillful, but I honestly don't think skillful and unskillful captures the, the, the full connotation of the way they're used in, 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 the, in the ancient texts. And so you're using mindfulness to discern, you know, is what I'm feeling right now, is how I'm thinking right now, is the way I'm about to react, is is, 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 is what I'm planning to do right now? Is this action that I'm doing in the present moment? Is, 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 is this consistent with having a wholesome perspective, which, which, which basically means, well, you use the word compassionate. That's a very good word. I mean, is it, is it, is it loving? Is it kind? Is it, is it, is it, is it without en- you know, deep enmity? You know, the, again, the, the three words from the, that tradition are... Um, you know, aloba adosa amoha, which which means not greedy, not angry, not vindictive, and 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 not and not false, not ignorant. So so very much the pursuit of truth within the context of pursuing um, kindness and generosity, and 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 um, and of course that's quite consistent with with a Christian perspective and a Jewish perspective, and 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 many other. I would say probably most other spiritual perspectives. So it. In that way, the, the wise advocate, um, it, you know, is very, very, very user friendly and brings in this critical element 
of making an assessment and discernment about what you're observing in the present moment. So it's not just being in the present moment. That's not enough. That is not, that does not qualify as mindfulness. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's a necessary part of mindfulness, but that alone is not mindfulness because you can be in the present moment and, and, and still be filled with all kinds of cravings and, and acting in, in, in all kinds of, you know, not, not ways that are not conducive to your or your community or your loved one's well-being. And, and you can be observing that in the present moment. It's, it's possible to do that. So that is not enough to be mindful. You also right. have to be making these assessment and discernments. And so I bring in this wise advocate concept to, to cover I love that. it. Yeah, no, that's great. I love it. Love it. Love it. Thank you for that. Now, I'm going to give you, I'm going to load you up with three questions. <laughs> and you actually answered one while we were waiting. But anyway, here comes the three questions. Why did you choose to be a psychiatrist? And did you, did you want to work with patients besides, you know, in residency? Or did you always just want to do research? Or do you want to do both? But you do have your own private practice. Correct. Oh, yeah. No, the second one is complete. <laughs> the second question is really easy to answer. I mean, I mean, never, never did it cross my mind to only do research. I, okay. I, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, there was always going to be working with people. I mean, mm. absolutely. I mean, you know, working with people, you know, I mean, I don't want to like overstate it and make it sound so romantic that, you know, oh, the research, the research is only about working with other people. I mean, you know, I'm a basic science researcher. I mean, I, I like doing basic science research. I've done plenty of research on, on rodents and animals. I mean, but, but, but um, never, ever did I for a moment consider, you know, only doing research. Yes, I always wanted to be involved in clinical work and I'm still involved in, in, mm. in clinical work and I've always been involved in clinical work and hopefully always will be. Now though I will add to that though um, now I actually spend more of my time when working with people um, in, the, in about the last 10 years and especially in the last five years I really do spend more time um, working with people who are already high functioning to be even more high functioning. I still see people with obsessive compulsive disorder regularly, but I have a, I have a small practice. So, mm-hmm. so the clinical psychiatry part is, 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 is really sm- smaller now. And, and most, of, uh, most of my work with people in, involves enhancing the performance of people who are already high performers. Now, as far as becoming a psychiatrist, I mean, the, the word choice is really interesting there because, I mean, I'm all for the concept of, 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 of making choices and making decisions. And in fact, I define the word mind when we talk about the relationship between the mind and the brain. I actually define the word mind as the choices and decisions that we make about how to direct and focus our attention. But in terms of me becoming a psychiatrist, I mean, you know, I was, you know, I, I was very much an adolescent. I mean, I was 15 years old, 14 15 years old, and, and so it was, you know, it was certainly not some, you know, mature decision, and, and I mean, it, it just kind of came to me, and, 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 and as I said on other occasions, in, in retrospect, I mean, I really do believe it's, it's a def- it was a divinely inspired calling. How? To become, a, to become a psychiatrist. Yeah, how? How did it, how was it divinely inspired? Okay, okay, so, so, all right. It was divinely inspired in the sense that 
um, it was it was pursued as a as a as a true calling, mm-hmm. uh, uh, not not just you know oh you know I want to do this occupation I want to you know this is going to be you know something I do and then I'll have my hobbies on the side. I mean I mean you know I I I I got. I got this sort of infusion of of motivation to commit my life to to um, to doing psychiatry, and I I certainly did do it, you know, very assiduously for for you know really, what what would you say? I mean, f- when if I was fourteen, I mean for for four full decades, I mean yeah. I I really really did did do it, and I still I still do it. I mean it's not. But, you know, this gets back to what we were just talking about in the beginning of the interview. I mean, I cannot deny it has, it has been a source of, of pain to me, of pain. But of, we're going to go emotion, into that. Of emotional pain, what mm. has happened to my profession in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can no longer really say I'm proud to be a psychiatrist because of what psychiatry has become. But, I mean, I'm doing the best, you know, I can't. I, I really try to work with young psychiatrists whenever I... I can to sort of, you know, bring good young people into the field to sort of get it back, to get it back on track. But I will candidly tell you that most business people and, and other very high functioning people who I work with now, they, mm. they do tend to say, Jeff, tell them you're a neuroscientist. Well, that's easy to do because I am a neuroscientist. Right. You know, but right. my primary identity to myself ha- ha- has not been neuroscientist and still to this day still to this day people frequently say psychologist and you know what psychology i'm going to be like entirely candid psychology now is honestly a more prestigious field in many ways it's a more exciting field um it the questions it's pursuing are are deeper i think in many ways i mean psychology is is more like a place to be i mean there's certainly calling me a psychologist in a way that they perceive to be flattering, you know, but to quote John Belushi, but no, I'm, I'm going to still correct them and go, no, actually, I'm a psychiatrist. Because so, I've, never, I've never completely let go of, of, of that identity, but I do, I'm happy if they call me a neuroscientist, you know, in, in a business setting, because I mean, like, why deal with all the problems of psychiatry? Really? How about so that? I want to, you beautifully led that into where I want to go. Because, first of all, you should be proud of yourself being a psychiatrist because I, I tell you, and I, I have um, a client whose mother is under psychiatric care. And I'm going to tell you about her a little bit later because I want you to actually tell the audience, and this is where I'm going. As a psychiatrist at UCLA, you would go to hear lectures from other doctors who were specialists in their fields with OCD, and you were excited to go until your discomfort levels were pushed beyond your comfort zones. And I could hear and feel your pain as you were saying that before. And because of their brutal treatments that they administered and also the danger that they put their patients in, can you tell the audience what you heard, saw, and read as you described in your book so they know, because it's out there in your books. Okay. So now you just tell them. Okay, on, so here we go. Air. So this is interesting. This gets, this gets, this gets into subtleties of, of even... Uh, the, the, the categorization of mental health. Right. In, in, in fact, the people who were saying the things that upset me the most were psychologists, mm-hmm. not psychiatrists. So, so psychology is, is a big field, a, ve- a very, very big field. And 
It's got a tremendous breadth. And, 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 and it, it too ha- has, has been profoundly influenced by this desire to be viewed as quote-unquote scientific. I mean, this word scientific ha- has become significantly problematic a- a- as, a, as a label, a person like basically putting their, their sense of identity as, you know, I'm a scientist. I mean, science definitely is important, but what happened in those days and still happens to this day, to be honest, I mean, in, in the OCD field, somewhat less. I mean, there has been improvement. But what was happening in those days, in the, in the, in the late 70s, and then when I really came on board in, in the mid-80s, is that, let's, there's no need to name names. I mean, honestly, no, these, are very, these are very famous, very, very famous psychologists that Every single person who's an expert on OCD will immediately know who they are without me even naming their names. That's so, right. like, there's no need to name their names. Mm-hmm. So, these, these people um, were extremely committed to the approach called behaviorism as, as really discovered and elaborated by, by uh, B.F. Skinner. So, so, so they, they were really into these instrumental approaches, which, which, which basically means conditioning people um, using operant conditioning techniques because you referred to it in the introduction that, that mm-hmm. they were basically using methods that were, were essentially learned and, 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 and um, clearly applicable in animals. I mean, now that doesn't mean they have no applicability to people, but, you know, let's be candid. I mean, these techniques are primarily always useful for training animals. So, so you're taking techniques that, you know, are really great for training animals, and now you're applying them to people. Now, I'm not saying they never have an application. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, and I don't really want to go back and, you know, fight old battles from, you know, this is 30 full years ago, Right. I mean um, that 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 all, that all of that I was like really engaged in all of this, but you said it in the introduction. You said it very clearly. Mm-hmm. In the I did. I what I said to myself when I saw some of these things they were doing. You know, really putting people like making people put you know feces in their hair. You know, not not wash their hands after after evacuating their bowels. I mean, you, you know, t- making them take the rearview mirror off their car. I mean, I, I mean, it it just went on and on in terms of the kinds of things they would do in the name of doing what was called and still is called exposure and response prevention. Now, let me just say extremely clearly, there is a role, definitely, for the use of exposure and response prevention in the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder. It 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 is effective. But then you get into these issues of like, how do you use it? Do you, do you use it in this extremely mechanical way? And here we're up to the key, key, key point. Mm-hmm. That the entire ethos of your program is, is, you know, this is why you asked me to come on your program. I did. Because, because, because this is why. Because we can now ask the question, what about a person's consciousness Mm-hmm. What about the fact that a person is a conscious, living soul, a spiritual being? What about that aspect of this person's life can we take into account to get them to do exposure and response prevention 
in a more humane way, in a less mechanical way, in a way where they feel empowered, in, the way, in a way when they're not just in a passive position, you know, being trained like an animal. I mean, um, you know, and there's a lot you can do. I'll also say there are cases, and they are not rare, if you get on a 1 to 10 scale, just to use a rough scale, when you get to those really severe cases of obsessive-compulsive disorder, and obsessive-compulsive disorder can get very, very, very severe so that it's totally incapacitated. When people have the disease at that level of severity, look, they are in a passive position. They don't really understand why they keep doing these behaviors again and again and again and again, and they've really lost control. So for all those people who are going to call in and write in and saying, oh, he's not fair to exposure and response prevention. Well, before you waste your time, you know, sort of having to write a letter that you might not need to so you can go back and work, you know, with your patients, hopefully a little bit more mindfully, is remember, I, I absolutely advocate, hopefully in a wise advocate way, for the use of even classical, pretty mechanical exposure and response prevention, where you expose people to stimuli that make them very anxious and then basically wait for the anxiety to pass in an essentially passive way. If that's what you need to do, do it. It works. It's effective. But if a person can realize, wait a second, this is just my brain sending me a false message. This mm -hmm. is not really me. You know, I actually can understand what's happening to me differently. And here's the big key. Mm -hmm. You can use, and I've done it for many years on many occasions, you can use exposure as a way, exposing people to stimuli that make them uncomfortable. And we all know it's going to make them uncomfortable. But we, 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 we get ready. We, 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 are, we are in a mental state that we feel empowered because what we're going to do is demonstrate that we don't have to react the same way we always did. So you can use exposure as a way of enhancing your mindfulness. You can right. use, and, and I actually have, have a name for that, which is refocus with progressive mindfulness. When you mm -hmm. refocus with progressive mindfulness, that's the third, that's a, a development of the third of my four steps, you relabel and you say, this is just OCD. This is just, this is just a desire to wash and check again. It's, it's not really me. It's just a feeling that I'm having. And then you reframe it or in the, in the original language, you reattribute it and say, it's my brain. The reason why it's so bothersome is it's just my brain. It's my brain sending me a false message. Now you refocus and you, and you just, change your behavior, you do anything that's adaptive that, that can get you to not do the compulsive behavior even for a few minutes. And when you do that on purpose, when you purposefully expose yourself to something that's difficult for you to do while getting ready to say, this is going to make me uncomfortable, that's relabel. The reason why it's going to be, make me uncomfortable is because it's a medical symptom caused by this brain imbalance. It's not me. It's just a medical symptom. And now I can refocus with progressive mindfulness and show that even though I feel uncomfortable, I don't have to give in to the feeling. And then, you know, so that, 
it changes the whole nature of how you use exposure and response prevention. And let me just finish that up by applying the same thinking to medication, and then we'll okay. do the subject of Good. medication. Because, because medication can be used in the exact same way. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I'm a completely favorable towards the in, intelligent, constructive use of medication, psychiatric medication, in treating OCD or any other mental health, any other psychiatric condition, as long as it's used in a way that engages the person to, to, to help themselves more effectively. And in OCD, that's really straightforward. And in, I'm going to just ask you this, because I have a lot of people that are OCD um, patients, and their doctors just give them medication to numb them, but never engage like you're engaging your patients. So I understand what you're saying about the, the pharmaceuticals, but, but as long as what you said, and you said engage them to be mindful and break things down, but they just want to numb them. Okay, let's be fair. Let's be mm-hmm. fair here because, I mm-hmm. mean, you know, I don't, I do not, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be unfair. No, uh, I, okay. I do not, I do not think that, that the vast majority of, of, of psychiatrists are prescribing medication. Let's just use OCD as the specific example because I have far more experience of that in the last 10 to 15, even 20 years. Good. I mean, um, I don't think it's fair to say they're, they're giving the people medication to numb them. Medications used in, 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 in effective doses in OCD will decrease the intensity of the very bothersome, you know, very, very destructive, if, if, if compulsions keep repeating again and again, it's very destructive. And, and the medications will decrease the frequency, the intensity, uh, of, of the symptoms, and, and, and that's not just numbing someone. I mean, that is a specific treatment. So, so we should be glad. I mean, there have been those kinds of advances have occurred in the, in the medication treatment of OCD. The standard medicines, serotonin uptake blockers, um, they actually, they don't just numb people. They decrease the, the actual bothersomeness, the intrusiveness, the intensity of the OCD symptom while leaving the rest of their mental life, you know, relatively un, unaltered, especially compared to how much it's affecting your OCD. But, but my point is, if you add on to that an active component so that when the intensity comes down, then the person can relabel more easily and go, that's just OCD. Mm-hmm. Reframe, reintribute more clearly going, ah, I know what that is. I'm not overwhelmed anymore. That, li- that, that amount of medication, I'm not overwhelmed. I can see it for what it is. It's just a false brain message. It's a deceptive brain message. Then refocus, use mindfulness, that changes your brain. And of course, that's the big discovery that when you refocus regularly, it changes your brain. It, it, it actually changes the disease state and, and it, it, it enhances, it strengthens your brain. And then over months and, and you know, not right away, but over months and years, you, you can bring down the dosage of the medication and the person is playing an active role and using their medication, like I sometimes say years ago, 
wa- like water wings. You no, know, it's I like learning that. how to swing with, wa- with, with water wings. And then over time, you need them less and less and less because you're learning. And as you learn and focus your attention more constructively, it, it changes your brain adaptively. See, I love that. Because you're really use, utilizing both. Yep, you're um, utilizing both. That's and I, and I love both. that. I yep. love that. Um, I, no, I really do. And that's why I really wanted you on, in, on the show because I wanted to really educate people that there is two ways of doing it. Actually, there's a multitude of ways to doing it. What I was saying to you earlier I was bringing in was I have a client whose mother – um, is under psychiatric care and she's always just looking for that next pill that will help her but unwilling to do the work that you're go- you, that you are doing and I'm going to send her the mp3 of this along with your books but her psychiatrist just gives her pills and um, just even said to her you know maybe what we should do next is maybe um, you know electric shock therapy if that doesn't work maybe we'll do a lobotomy and she's seriously considering it and her daughter who I'm working with with OCD who's had incredible success is beside herself that her mother's even thinking that way so I love your work and so appreciative of it. We're going to go to break in about two minutes. So um, I wanted to talk about for a split second or two or three, um, how you feel about, well, talk to me about bringing in the younger psychiatrist so you can show them the new way of applying psychiatry. Yeah. Okay. So there there are definitely younger psychiatrists or medical students interested in going into psychiatry who, of course, they're interested in medication. Of course, they're interested in the brain. You know, that, that's a given and that's fine. If they're, if they're not interested in that, they shouldn't even be there and they wouldn't have gotten in in the first place. But, but, but I'm happy to report, I'm happy to report that this radical materialism this radical statement that just the brain, it's only the brain, if, if, if not, does not have nearly as much traction in the younger people as it does in, my, in people of my generation. And, and, they're, and they're, they are looking for just what we've been talking about, other things you can do that can empower people, that can, that can and, and, and my whole concept, the term I coined is self-directed neuroplasticity, mm-hmm. that by focusing attention you can actually get people through the choices and decisions they make, that's their mind, the choices and decisions they make about how to focus their attention. You can actually change the brain, that self-directed neuroplasticity, and through that process, you can change how much medication is needed and, and, and have a real active relationship so that the person is viewing the medication as something that is helping them become their true self and, but they're the person who's making them their true self. The medication is not doing it for them. The medication is helping them do it. That's Great. a big difference. No, it is. And there's a um, lot of young people who want to learn how to do it that way. Good. Dr. Schwartz, we're going to go to break. Um, everyone, we're going to go to break. We're going to come back with Dr. Schwartz and continue talking about OC neuroplasticity, you're not your brain and unlock your brain and his four-step process. So we'll be right back. Okay, so stay tuned, everyone. (laughs) 
friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Do you feel alone? Even when you're surrounded by others, do you feel that there's sometimes nowhere to turn and nobody really understands? Remember, you are not alone. Every week, host April J. Ford, who has faced adversity as a constant in her life, helps you rise above life's challenges with your own blueprint meant to help you find out who you are. April's challenges have included childhood sexual abuse, becoming a widow and single parent at 32, and other such curveballs. She'll help you every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. We're all living in the moment, but you never know when life is going to take a unique turn. It doesn't have to be a challenge, but perhaps more of a detour to get where we need to be. On The Sky's the Limit, host Karen Levitt knows that experience, having faced it herself. Learn about her journey from a life-changing event to where she is now. Her guests are amazing people who are living these experiences and overcoming obstacles. Learn from their stories every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You're listening to Quantum Connection, exploring health, science, and spirit with Marina Rose QDNA. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to info at marinarosequdna.com. Now, back to Quantum Connection, exploring health, science, and spirit. Welcome back, everyone, to Quantum Connection Radio Show, where we explore health, science, spirit to accelerate your path to extraordinary living. Our guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz, and our topic today is neuroplasticity and you, you are not your brain and unblocking your brain from the OCD in your DNA. So, Dr. Schwartz, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Okay, great. You were, yes, we were, I am. Yes, good. We were talking about, we, we ended um, with directed neuroci- neuroscience or neuroplasticity. And I wanted to go back to the, co- the term that you coined, brain lock, uh, because our, I want you to just tell our guests about that. Oh, sorry, our um, listeners about... Okay, good, that's easy. I'll I'll just make that short. I'll make that one pretty short. Okay, I'll make that one, you know, pretty short. Because that really just gets into this brain mechanism where, where the front, the bottom of the front of the brain, which is called the orbitofrontal cortex, basically instead of getting shifted, when you feel like something is wrong and you change and you, you, you feel like something's dirty, you wash, the error detection circuitry there would shift the, 
the gear shifter, which is in the habit center of the brain, gets locked in place. And, and so you feel something's dirty, you feel like something's wrong, you wash it, the feeling that it's dirty does not go away. And, and, and that mechanism we discovered by brain imaging. And there's actually a good article on, on my homepage, um, JeffreyMSchwartz.com, an article that was in Discover Magazine just two years ago. It's called um, "In Defense of Free Will," and 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 it's all, the whole mechanism is described in very user-friendly terms, and that's right on the home page of my uh, web of, of my website, JeffreyMSchwartz.com. Great. That's what brain lock is. That the error detection circuit and the, basically the automatic transmission of the brain is not working right. It's locked in place. The error, the error feeling is locked in place because of a biochemical, as you said, DNA genetically inherited problem. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you for that. And um, I want you to go into each. I know you went into it before the four uh, processes that you have: relabel, reattribute, refocus, revalue. Can you go back into that right. and explain okay, that? describe those a little bit more? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yep. Okay. Yes, that's easy. So um, the way you said it is the original version, and, and that is the version that was developed for OCD specifically. I, I now actually changed this, the name of the second step to reframe to make it more generally applicable to anyone, and, and, and that's what's really described in in You Are Not Your Brain, in, in, in my book, You Are Not Your Brain, relabel is always relabel, which, which is mindfulness, you know, the entry point into mindfulness, where, you, where you, we sometimes call it making mental notes, where you, where you acknowledge and just describe to yourself in very simple terms how you're feeling, what you're thinking right now. So obviously, if, if, if it's OCD, it would be, you know, I feel like I need to wash, but in more general application, it could be I'm upset right now, I'm, I'm, I'm agitated right now, um, I'm feeling really happy right now, um, I'm fearful right now, I'm nervous right now. Um, so just easy, or even just one word, happy, sad, worried, anxious, agitated, angry, to, to get yourself oriented. Then you reframe, and reattribute really just means when it's OCD, you know what you're working on. You have this intrusive, bothersome feeling, and you say, that's due to my brain. That's so you attribute it to the brain, and it's not me, it's just my brain. Reframe is a more general application. We're saying, okay, I'm feeling this because of my brain, but you know what? We also can see that there, there's what we call distort, cognitive distortions, deceptive brain messages. And, and we correct, we use basic cognitive techniques that come right out of cognitive therapy to a significant degree to correct those cognitive distortions. And, and, and we change false statements into true statements. So the most straightforward one of that is, I'm no good, I can't do this, no wonder I feel lousy, I feel lousy because I deserve to feel lousy. I mean, all of these negative self-statements that are so common in depression and very common in OCD as well, they all contain very important cognitive distortions, things like emotional reasoning, the way I feel must be real just because I feel it, even though it's very negative, all or nothing thinking, completely not accounting for the fact that some things are good, some things could improve, and just saying everything's terrible, um, 
re- mind reading, thinking other people have negative opinions when you really don't know what you're thinking. Um, the whole, you know, should statements where you're telling yourself, I should be able to do this. I should be able to do that. This shouldn't be so hard when it's a difficult thing. It's okay that it's hard. In other words, many things that people say to themselves have a significant amount of cognitive distortion and you reframe and correct. And that's where your wise advocate is so helpful and says, this isn't so easy. It takes time. You're making progress. Don't discount the positive, which is one of the most common cognitive distortions. You know, remember Things can improve. You know, keep your eyes on your target. Try to do something constructive. And then you refocus. And that's what actually changes the brain. When you refocus your attention, you, you, you change your brain because the brain then gets activated to the thing that you're focusing on. And the last step is called revalue because when you relabel, reframe and refocus regularly, it changes your brain, self-directed neuroplasticity. As your brain changes, your values are more positive. And what used to be negative, now your brain is no longer so negative. Now your brain is more positive and your values are more positive. You've literally revalued your brain by changing it through self-directed neuroplasticity. That's the summary of the approach. Great. Great. Um, Thank you. So you also mention in your book, mainstream philosophical and scientific discourse may remain strongly biased towards a materialistic perspective. Yet the simple fact is that that the materialism of classical physics offers no intuitively meaningful way of explaining the critical role played in the will, uh, played by the will and the brain changes um, changes that seen in OCD patients. We're regarding. We're talking about the PET scans and stri- the the brain of the person who's striving to free themselves of its inner compulsions. It, this is much more than electrical impulses within a material construct. Can you elaborate on that, please? Sure. I mean that. Okay. So this is okay. It. I, it, that definitely involves quantum reasoning, although we ha- I do say we have to be a little careful with that term, but okay, I, you know, I'm not going to waste time with, with, with this, you know, the use of the term in, in certain, you know, pop, pop psychology context, but that's okay. It, the statement that made is completely true, I think. That, that is the hallmark of my perspective. I, mm-hmm. I, I agree with it. You were reading something that I wrote. So, That's right. So, I was just reading what you issue, wrote, and I loved the it. The issue is yes. that I, I know that. I mean, that's right. So, so am I, that, I wrote it a while ago, but my perspective is still exactly the same as that. And, and, and as it is in most things, almost all. I can't think of anything I've written that I really don't agree with anymore. Um, that the... The, the issue is, is this, that in the material world, there really is no mind. There's no experience. There, there's, there's no subjective perspective. There are no feelings. All there is is matter. And, and in trying to reduce everything about a person's awareness to matter, what you end up doing is turning them into a robot. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there's been a lot of philosophy on this and, and, you know, it's a big, big, big subject, but 
the simplest way to understand it is that the problem with materialism is it, as, this, as, as a philosophy, especially of doing mental health, is that the brain itself is just a piece of matter. It's just what you said. It, it, it's electrical impulses, it's chemicals, it's membranes, etc., etc., et put, put together in un, you know, unimaginably complicated ways. But all of that matter does not add up to a person's perspective, to, to a subjective experience, to, you know, there's a lot of philosophy that's been saying we could understand everything there is to know about what it means to see the color green, but that does not add up to the experience you have when you see a plant that is green. And this is a deep, deep philosophical problem that is completely unsolved. Everybody acknowledges it's completely unsolved. And the people who are materialists just use, they just make an empty promise and say, someday we're going to understand that. And people on the other side of the line, like me, go, we don't see any way you can possibly explain this. And you certainly haven't explained it. And we're not going to let you say that materialism explains everything when you can't even explain basic experiences. I love I mean, it. Basic sensory experiences. And I they love can't it. Explain, and, yeah. they, and they know they can't explain mm-hmm. it. And the honest ones admit they can't explain it. I mean, they just they someday will be able to. And that's where the term promissory materialism comes from. Now, in a quantum perspective, without getting into like the deep complications, and they are deep complications. I know. Let me just say, I worked for 15 years with, uh, with Henry Stapp, who, you know, God bless him, you know, he's 87 and a half years old, and he's still up there in, in Berkeley. And, and he, you know, he worked with the founders of quantum physics, Werner Heisenberg and Wolfgang Pauli. And, and, and together, you know, the quantum stuff all came from him. 100% all of it came from him. You know, most of the neuroscience came from me. And, and, and he came up with this idea from me describing the work with OCD and other things, this, this principle called quantum Zeno effect, which really has a bottom line, which is basically common sense. In quantum physics, you actually can say that observation stabilizes the brain system. And, 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 and that's basically what we take advantage of, that observation, that's what's really new in, in, in quantum physics, is that the act of observation is, is not passive, it's active mm-hmm. in quantum physics. And that's the big change in quantum physics. It's no longer just passive. Now there's an active component. And it's simply a matter of remembering that you can, the, the statement that you can change your own brain by how you focus your attention is a completely reasonable statement to make within a quantum conceptualization. But within a, within a classical materialist conceptualization, it really makes no sense at all because, because there is really no attention. It's just the brain grinding away grinding away, grinding away. And, and, and there are no subjective experiences in that world. And, and, that, and that, there's a huge mismatch between what the reality of materialism and the experience of a human being and quantum conceptualizations can account for that much, much better than materialist ones. That's the short summary. And that's at least scientifically grounded. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, and, and 
and it's a fair statement that that is scientifically grounded. Yeah, I I love your work, Dr. Schwartz. My hat is off to you for doing such incredible work and incredible research and incredible breakthroughs. And I love your guts and just your truth and honesty. And our show is just about over. And um, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show, on the Quantum Connection show. You are just incredible. You're such a compassionate humanitarian. Wonder, you're a wonderful gift to me and the universe and all of the people on this beautiful planet and in the universe. I love your heart, your passion, your purpose for all of humanity and the care and the commitment that you have been divinely inspired to help all of humanity. I just thank you so much. Thank you for writing your books. Thank and it was a yeah, and it was a pleasure and honor having you on the show. And I'm grateful to have this slice of passionate life with you today. And I'm so thrilled to have our show documented in our treasured archives for our future listeners. So thank you so much. And everyone will be back next okay, week. Okay, thanks. And, and it was, you're right. Go ahead. Go ahead, Dr. Schwartz. Go ahead. Yeah, and and... As as you just said, it's it's not just me. I mean, there there you know, there there is there's there's a greater force. You know, there's a there is a divine inspiration, and I could not do this completely on my own. I'd be completely incapable of it without a divine spark. I couldn't do it at all. Uh, and I, and I just you know, I thank God for that help. I really do. Thank and you. and thank yourself for listening to that divine spark and God. Thank you. Thank you so much. Stay tuned for next week. Thank you. We'll have another wonderful guest. Thank you so much, everyone. Bye. Thank you for enjoying Quantum Connection, exploring health, science, and spirit with Marina Rose QDNA. Please join us again for another edition of the program next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Change your DNA. Instantly change your life. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.